Mr. Stanley Sadowitz sits down and we explore all the different projects he's worked on. I mean, he's designed houses, housing, offices, museums, libraries, wineries, synagogues, churches, memorials, and commercial and residential interiors. Man, this guy is awesome. Thank you so much for coming. So I'm sitting here with Stanley Sadowitz, who his firm name is Natoma Architects. He's a massive, massive uh, creative and, and so talented. Thank you for coming. My first question for you is, I wonder if you could articulate your firm's work and, and the aesthetic. That would be dynamite, just to, you know, for some of our listeners who aren't so familiar with your work. Our work revolves around two sort of key things. The one has to do with the site and the, the place. And that really governs how the outsides of our buildings are. And then the other has to do with the interior and the program. So um, in terms of the site, we're very interested in the way that buildings build their context. And especially working in a city like San Francisco, um, there's so many unique neighborhoods and different architectures. And so each place that we work in, we try to really um, sort of s continue the character of that place, but also produce something that's of our own time and new. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's a kind of idea about context that determines the outsides of our buildings. And then the insides are really about the life of the interior and the world that you make within. And our attitude to that is to actually create a framework that affords the most kind of freedom for the occupants. So we like to think of what we do as a kind of instrument which provides opportunities for the inhabitant of the space. And I'm familiar with the 8 Octavia building. It's one of the newer ones here in the city. Right. And it's incredible, really creative, the way the louvers, you know, the shades work. What was, you know, how did that come about? And how did that reflect to the greater neighborhood around it? Very mixed. It's got a certain amount of Victorian fabric, and it's also got... Um, in that particular location, which is on Market Street, some bigger, more commercial and institutional buildings like the Baptist Church across the street. So mm -hmm. there's quite a diverse collection of objects around that. But the interest that I had in the site was essentially that it's the moment when the freeway kind of touches yeah. the city. It's a gateway. Yeah. And I wanted to use that opportunity to actually introduce people to contemporary San Francisco. So the texture of the building with its kind of vertical detail is very much like um, the texture of the kind of traditional streets of San Francisco where there's a lot of articulation and fine grain. But the building is also, as I was saying before, a kind of instrument for the occupants where mm. from the interior you can actually modulate and control your relationship to the outside by the way that you adjust the louvers. It's a, 
a site which has very strong sun exposure to the west and also noise from Octavia Boulevard, which is where the kind of um, freeway dumps all the traffic yeah. to the northern part of the city. So the building is a kind of um, instrument for its occupants, but it's also a billboard that presents a, con a kind of contemporary idea of San Francisco to people as they arrive in the city. Uh, you know how you draw it up, right? You have a, you not just draw it up, but you have it in your mind and how this creation is going to turn out and how right. it's going to look and feel and right. work. Does, did the louvers, because every occupant you know does them at different um, angles, so has, does it have a different look than you had I imagined? Mean, that's, that's exactly what I wanted the building to be, is a kind of constantly reconfiguring live reflection yeah. of the occupants and the life within it. And it's not the first building that I've done using those louvers. I actually yeah. live in a building which has louvers. Uh -huh. So I'm very familiar with what it's like to live like that and also what the changing kind of um, realities of the facade are. So rather than a sort of like fixed grin, like a Victorian, <laughs> this building is... Fixed grin. This That's building like the is... right there. This <laughs> building is always kind of changing. Um, yeah. depending on, you know, what people are doing inside, whether they're at home or not, and whether they are feeling like public or not, and mm -hmm. so on. So in that sense, I think it's um, a more contemporary kind of idea about um, the image of a, of a building and what it can say in a city. That's not a triangulated lot, is it? It's pretty... No, it's, it's a long lot, but its edge is cut off by the angle of Market Street, oh, which intersects okay. the grid. Yeah. Have you ever worked with a triangulated lot? Yeah. Uh, what challenges does that maybe present? You know, every site has opportunity and every like geometry offers different possibilities. Mm -hmm. So I would say, um, you know, the, the triangular lots often have a lot more girth, like opportunity for exposure mm -hmm. than a square lot because you have much more surface that's open mm -hmm. um, you know there's like triangular rooms are um, not necessarily the easiest to um, occupy and in terms of my idea about creating freedom you know I like to avoid um, like complex geography geometries and rather provide like the most simple open kind of space mm -hmm. that people can inhabit and, and change on their own. Have you ever heard the saying that there's no new ideas like basically people mean that they get recycled ideas or things get recycled do you believe that? I believe that there's like different ways to interpret things in a particular moment and that makes them new and unique. I, I don't really care whether ideas are new or not, but I think if they're appropriate to the time and place, that that's what really counts and mm -hmm. that they are of their own moment. And what do you think, you know, you must be inspired still today, like, you know, keeping at it, like keep reiterating and keep growing. 
what kind of flames or what fuels the flames for you know that to keep growing for you you know i see my job as um you know sort of like a repairman you know almost like a a mechanic who fixes cars Mm -hmm. i mean you you've arrive at a place and it's out of order you know it's not working it's mm-hmm. it's broken in some way and the act of building is actually to restore that little spot in the world and every situation that you know is brought to me that has that kind of opportunity is a challenge and that in itself is all that i need uh, you know we kind of go through a concept phase and then we pick an aesthetic um, direction, and then we understand how the user is going to, you know, the, the homeowner the, is going to use the room. And then it just kind of evolves. I don't know that I have, like, I want to create this, and it turned out that. Like, the process is inspirational to you all the way to the end. Do you have any color to add to that? Do you have an, insp- like, flag in the dirt kind of inspiration that you start on every project? You know, I think it's a matter of, like gathering the information, understanding the opportunity. But in every project, there's a moment when you just get a sense that it's kind of like come together. It's like there's a click and suddenly you realize that's what it's going to be. Yeah. So, I mean, whether you call it inspiration or not, it's it's just that um, sort of synthetic moment when all of this sort of possibility somehow gets kind of focused into a single thing. You, like sometimes when I'm, my favorite part of a project is really the day the furniture's going in and like all the things that have gone on in my mind. You know, for you it must be, you know, once the, the place is painted and, you know, the floors are finished and the reveal is kind of done, the scaffolding's out. I kind of like dance around a little giddy. I kind of just get so excited because it's, it's finally come that to that day do you have a moment where you're just like st- what point are you so stoked about the project you know i don't think there's any particular moment the process is really for me the most exciting thing and the sort of incremental realization of this tiny little thought that started in your head mm-hmm. that starts to become realized and every time I go to a project and it's moving along, you know, more of that little fragment of idea is experienceable. So it's yeah. typically not, um, I mean, I don't, f- of course I love things to get finished, but, you know, things never are finished. I mean, I've now realized that you know, there's only a certain level of unfinishedness when you leave a project because the life that people um, create inside it is constant and evolving. But, um, you know, I do, I, I mean, I, I do just really love the process of realization. Um, I'm looking for this, uh, these different approaches I'd written down, I gleaned from your website that. There's six different concepts to adhere by. Do, I, do you mind if I get a little kind of wonky on details? No, not at all. Okay, so there's space, system, instrumentality, materiality, time, and green. Um, you know, we can pick them apart one by one, or I would just be curious in what instrumentality is. 
I mean, I think the, that is differentiating architecture um, as an object with architecture as an instrument or an apparatus. I don't actually care very much about the objecthood of things. Mm -hmm. I care about how they are in the service of use. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's the difference between a camera and a photograph. Like, I'm more interested in the camera than the photograph. I'm more interested in the telephone than the conversation. So, I don't see architecture as a fixed thing, like a work of art or a photograph. Mm. I see it as the actual mechanics, mechanics that allows yeah, that to happen. So, th it's, it's, it's the difference between an instrument and a monument. A monument just stands mute. An instrument actually allows life to facilitate or helps to facilitate the process of um, use mm. in life. In that note, like, is there a part of a building uh, that you really, you use the word mechanics, but there's a, is there a part of a building that you kind of just really are fascinated by? Like sometimes I see in a mechanical room and it's beautifully done. And I love that. Is that in any way something you dig or, you know, the foundation pour or is there anything that, that, that part of the building process that you... You know, the part of um, what I'm focused on is trying to make all the machinery of building as compact and invisible as possible. Uh -huh. So, you know, like things like kitchens, bathrooms, storage, I like to sweep them out of the way and leave the most sort of empty and open, yeah, um, yeah. like, f field of space. Yeah. So, you know, the, that's kind of the key of the way my plans work. And I have two different kind of approaches to that. The one is what we call thickened walls, where we push like all the mechanics and services and systems of buildings into a zone like a wall and leave the room empty. And the other is where we sort of accumulate those things like kitchens, bathrooms, storage in what we call pods and we compact them. And the goal again is to have the most kind of open, empty field around them. Mm -hmm. And then, so you design houses, housing, like multi-unit buildings, lots of those I've seen personally, offices, museums, libraries, wineries, synagogues, churches, memorials, and other residential interiors. Okay, so that's a lot of discipline to tackle, you know, with you and your team of architects. Uh, but some of the same rules apply, I suppose, to all of these, but how do they differ? I mean, the process is really the same. You know, the actual, um, like, products might vary, but the, the, the kind of thinking that goes into it and the me methodology is pretty similar, f regardless of scale. I mean, you know, I, I, I've designed chairs and, and furniture and, and um, ceremonial objects or, uh, you know, like big buildings, like we're doing high-rise buildings in Los Angeles yeah. of 30 stories. I mean, it's, it's really not that different, the, 
the way of thinking from one scale to another. Mm -hmm. I could appreciate that. Um, what about a favorite project? You know, the favorite projects are always what I'm doing now, what I was working on this morning. You know, those are, it's always, you know, for me, like every day I wake up and I've got things to work on and those are the things that I'm most kind of obsessed with and focused on. It's always like the things that have possibility that are sort of growing. But, you know, there's many, many projects going on in our office and so days are pretty, um, you know, like unpredictable. I mean, things will just rear up that have to be taken care of on projects that you weren't really thinking about. Mm -hmm. You know, I'll get a call from um, Tiburon about a house or from Los Angeles about a hotel or, you know, so, um, I mean, it's just staying alert and alive and just yeah, dealing yeah. with everything creatively. I mean, I never think of the process as finished or, um, you know, it, design never stops really until, um, you know, the owners move in and, and then they start taking over the design. But um, in terms of like our process, being creative about everything, you know, all the time is, is the challenge. So you grew up in, or well, yeah, you went to school. Your your first degree was in, at at the Witz, right, in in Johannesburg. Um, you know, so did you p imagine this studio when you were, the, you know, the eighteen year old Stanley Sedowitz? Did he imagine this studio? And this is kind of a big question, but you know, how did it manifest? How did you dream it? You know, I. I started my work in Johannesburg when I was going to school. Um, I had already started building, and for my thesis, I actually built a house for an artist, quite a famous artist now, Norman Catherine. I also built another house in Johannesburg after that, which um, I built altogether four houses. Um, before I left South Africa. Mm -hmm. And um, one of them is now on the register of historic buildings. That's in awesome, South Africa. I read that. That's great. So, you know, I, I always um, trusted my vision of how things could be and just always had a belief that, um, you know, if I worked hard at what I thought was right, that other people would also um, find value in those things. So I've never really had a plan about anything other than just like fixing things every day, you know, just doing what, what I can. Um, you know, a lot of people, um, I mean, I've known people that, you know, they arrive and they rent a big office and build it out and you know I've never worked like that at all I've just sort of like done my work mm -hmm. and my work's generated work and and that's the way that things have been and I mean now you know I have really amazing projects to work on I mean really things that are changing cities and um, you know it's a, it's it's great to have that opportunity because 
you know, living in a beautiful city like San Francisco, you, you realize the responsibility of, um, you know, building buildings and how they do affect the landscape of the city. And yeah. just in the time that, you know, we've been here for the last few years, so much has been built and so little of it has really added to the quality of the city. I mean, there's a lot of new buildings, but, you know, they haven't really made San Francisco a more memorable, beautiful city. In fact, sometimes when I walk around the city, I think, like, where am I? You know, like, I mean, I was downtown a few weeks ago and I was walking in the south of Market and, you know, it just feels like anywhere, anywhere. I mean, hmm. so... You know, all I, the new buildings, yeah, the Fremont, the, the yeah. Harrison, those kind yeah, of yeah. I mean, they just could be. You could be in any city, in any anywhere at all. Mm -hmm. And you know, th to me, there's a loss in that because I think the thing that everybody loves about San Francisco is the qualities that have developed here through its architecture and climate and geography that are quite unique. But somehow, like most of the new buildings that are getting built, don't really seem to pay attention to that. There, you recorded earlier this year in an article saying, dealing with the city planning department, well, I'll paraphrase it, they don't really understand architecture, and it's a very slow process. Uh, what do they miss, in your words, and you're kind of alluding to some of that, like there's opportunity missed with these high-rises and the city influence that could be it's not. You know, I just think really what would be amazing is if somehow there was a vision about how we could work together to build the city more beautifully. You know, if you look at the architecture that's going on in places like Portugal or, or Spain, I mean in a city like Barcelona, you know, there's, a, there's an acceptance of modern architecture but there's also a unique quality of that modern architecture which is very particular like mm -hmm. if you if you look at a magazine you know and you see a building you can almost always say this is in lisbon this right. is in barcelona and i would really think it would be amazing if people could like say that about the modern buildings in san francisco but if mm -hmm. i picked you know, 90% of the new buildings, you wouldn't know if they were in San Diego, Emeryville, Tucson, Los Angeles. You know, there's no kind of DNA mm. to them that makes them sure. San Franciscan. And so, you know, the opportunity that I think exists for us is to sort of discover ways to build that do have this like quality of this place and the planning department aren't really helping with that i mean i think they think they are but i i mean if i see what's getting built i have to say they're not on so many blogs i mean here in san francisco socket sites one of them adams one of my friends you're on the socket side you see all the the churn there all the comments that that all the great architecture starts and then it gets watered down to something that is palatable and can get passed and built. Is that a fair assessment? Maybe I'm... I don't, I don't feel like we do that with our work. I mean, 
I feel like as we move through the process, we get more information when our projects are exposed to um, neighbours and other people who have views about the project. And we try to take that and actually use it to make the project better, not kind of let it like tear it apart. So mm. I think there's also a sort of resiliency that's required that maybe not all, all architects are, um, you know, like willing to, to sort of do, to mm. actually keep reinventing and improving their work. So some of them seem to just like fall apart, you know, and, and flake out. I don't know. I mean, mm. I, I, I can just say that I don't feel like that part of the process um, is necessarily something that makes the building worse. It should actually be able to be converted into a positive mm -hmm. part of the process. I really like what you're saying where, you know, okay, we have the Victorian and that was that era. Okay, so what's, the, you know, there's not many vic cities with Victorians. Okay, well, whatever. You would know more about London, if, you know. But, you know, if we could get some sort of framework on what modern architecture, what exciting San Franciscan modern architecture, so we'd have a almost a city brand. Yeah. I'm really excited about that yeah. opportunity. So just look at the work that's going on in Portugal yeah. and you'll see like how clearly the architects there share a perspective about, you know, how and what they build. And mm. it's, you know, I mean, I think it's possible to develop something like that. But I think a lot of the regulatory input that it's been given has actually worked in a counter direction. I mean, one of the things that, you know, we often are asked to do is to break up our buildings into like little pieces to pretend that big buildings are not big buildings, you know, that they're made out of lots of small buildings. And I mean, if you look at older parts of San Francisco, you'll see there were actually very beautiful big pieces of the city built with very simple, single sort of architectural languages. Even, you know, the old Victorians, if you look at them, there's not that much variety. You know, they all have bay windows. Some might be, um, you know, s curved. Some might be um, sort of three-sided. Some might be square, you know. But when you look down the street, they're all made out of wood. They're all painted. They're all have glass and you know there's only three or four materials on all of those buildings when you look at the new buildings which are sort of conceived in a way to try to replicate that richness you'll find that there's probably like 50 materials you know almost every material known to man on, on one building, building. Hmm. yeah and you know i mean i can name like lots of examples of that and and you know that's something that i think is a is a misunderstanding of the quality of the city that's been kind of encouraged at an official level but it's not really how san francisco is you know the the images of san francisco that are the most coherent and beautiful are say when you come across the golden gate bridge and you see this um almost prismatic like mat that's just clung to the hills but it's very much a kind of geometric almost like a greek like 
seaside town, you know, and it's just all pastel and white, and and it's all very mono mono kind of chromatic, chromatic yeah. and material wise. And mm-hmm. you know, there are many images of the city that present that. But mm-hmm. if you look at the new buildings, none of them actually kind of work out of that sort of inspiration. Mm-hmm. You know, they're all working from this idea that, oh, we must make our big building look like 20 buildings mm-hmm. instead of like saying, well, a big chunk, like, you know, the whole of Pacific Heights actually is more powerful as a unified image that, you know, that has mm-hmm. relationships um, to each other and, and a similar kind of material palette and language. What's the, the hospital that's getting rebuilt? On Van Ness, their old campus, CPMC. Yeah. Have you seen that campus? And that's kind of a whole city block or two. Yeah, yeah. I'm familiar with that. Yeah. Um, your thoughts? I mean, I've seen the proposed design for that, mm-hmm. and um, yeah, I don't have much to say about it. It's it, it's it's um, you know it, it's just really nostalgic and kind of pretends like. Um, y- you know, we, we're living in a different century. Honestly, I don't really think there's much to value uh, about life in other times, you know, that we would want to, like, replicate. You know, I, I don't want to wear corsets. I don't want to have to, like, drive Model T Fords when we have, like, electric vehicles. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, honestly, I think there's no better time than the present. We've never had such an abundance of opportunities, solved so many other problems, you know. So why replicate the fabric of an era that we've bypassed? You know, like the iPhone. I mean, just look at, like, these things, these beautiful objects that we're surrounded by, you know. I mean, they should be the kind of models for what we're building, not, you know, like Georgian or Victorian or whatever. So, I mean, that just stinks of <laughs> that kind of nostalgia, which I don't suffer from. I actually, you know, I loved my grandmother, but I certainly wouldn't want to live the way she lived. You know, I think my life's a lot better. Get some and kind of just yeah. go for it. yeah. So, you know, I don't, I don't really, I, I, th- I think that architecture is just pointless and a waste of energy. Can I ask you maybe to, because I'm, I'm hearing that argument, I, I feel like I'm, I'm like somewhere in the middle. I like a bit of everything, personally. That's where I'm going to land. But have you ever heard of um, the, the architect Michael Ember? No. So I went to the uh, Classical Institute of Architecture lecture one year um, in the Presidio, and I heard him speak, and I just call it like high-end hacienda, or he, you know, modern classics, but he really framed, you know, he does like Texas ranches and places in Montana, okay? So he's really considering the materiality and the nature around him, and so, I mean, his houses don't blend with the landscape, they're not moot, but they are one with the earth, let's just say. Right. So if you had to counter the way you're articulating, articulating new and evolving and current, 
if you had to argue using his maybe perspective, do you see value in um, that kind of earth-like home? You know, I, I don't know the particular person you're talking about's work, but I've just been in Marfa, Texas. Do you know about Marfa? Moffat? Marfa. Marfa, no. Have you heard of Donald Judd? Yes, the actor? No. That's the producer? No, he's oh. an artist. Oh. So, oh, yeah. yeah. So, you know, Marfa is in West Texas in this very stark desert landscape. Uh -huh. It's very empty and silent. And Judd lived there and made architecture and furniture and sculpture and, and um, prints and things that were a result of being in that landscape. And they capture the kind mm. of silence and emptiness of this very beautiful kind of place. There's a national park called Big Bend. And I mean, it's almost like Egyptian in its power it's just this i mean it's high desert so it's not just sand but it's like this flat desert plain with these unbelievably beautiful sort of object volcanoes that are just like located in this plain but it's about like this sort of quiet and and so you know i mean i think when one talks about like responding to a landscape um you know, that's a kind of work for me that has resonance with its place. I mean, he the way that Judd arranged like a hundred aluminum boxes in a giant um, um, armory that he bought from um, the U.S. military when they abandoned that that part of the country. Mm -hmm. You know, and he just has this grid of um, aluminum boxes which are all identical except that each one is unique. Like there's a plane that shifts. Each one is, you know, so there's like a hundred variations on the theme of a cube. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, so, you know, that kind of starkness in a way, um, I think, you know, I, I certainly have great empathy with. And I think, you know, the, the architecture, I mean, Robert Irwin, who's another... Um, you know, like um, artist of that period just did an installation in Marfa where he basically converted a hospital into uh, an experience. And I mean, the you know, what he did is he just took out all the walls and it's a U-shaped building and he just ran a scrim down the middle so all the rooms are bisected. But in the one leg, the scrims, they all in the same direction. So sometimes you walk along them, sometimes you walk through them. Mm -hmm. And the one side's black and the other side's white. Mm. And it's just about light and sort of emptiness. It's just about the desert, you know. But it's like, it's a man-made recreation of the experience of the desert. And mm -hmm. so, you know, those are, for me, very potent kind of objects um, if you had um, a different aesthetic like, I don't know well, actually I have a better question before that um, I think there's maybe two ways people create a studio 
they're you know in architecture or design of a you know meaningful studio that's putting out work that may be really client driven if you're going to extremes one's really client driven um they'll take the inspiration from the client re you know make it better and give them what their dream was and the other one is i do my work you know on the other extreme is i kind of do my work and um hopefully people like it and then they're attracted to me for the work i'm kind of interested in and those are, do you agree that those are kind of two different approaches that people take to building a studio? Um, and, and both are, I guess in my opinion, both are great. You know, and, and anyway, do you, is there a third one? Is it, is it not like that at all? Um, I mean, I think that does set up two poles. Um, I mean, I, I think everything's more blurred. You know, obviously... You know, you're a service industry, so you always are working for, I mean, the needs of others. But they also don't have the tools and understanding of the possibilities. So that's what you bring. Mm -hmm. And, I mean, if they mesh, I think the products can be amazing. Yeah. You know, my my teacher um, always told me that, you know, you, you give everything the very best shot. But, I mean, if somebody comes to me and, you know, they, they give me a problem and then I figure out a way to resolve that mm -hmm. problem and then they don't like it, then I feel like that's it, you know. I, I mean, I don't have, like, I'm not going to, solve it again. I can't solve the same problem in a different, completely new way. I mean, yeah. if there's stuff that needs work, yes. But, you know, I've, I've had times when, it's mostly for residential clients, because people, you know, like the work that I do now, which is more like for developers, um, developers have other interests rather than you know the personal aesthetic i mean mm -hmm. they and and i like that kind of framework to work in because um it's quite objective and numerical you mm -hmm. know it's about like means and ends and economies and and value and and i, I find that a really like comfortable framework to work in because mm -hmm. i like because i believe in optimization um, economy. You know, one of the things I love about the Tesla that you mentioned, it has 20 moving parts mm. in the Tesla engine, as opposed to the internal combustion engine, which has 200 yeah. moving parts. Yeah. And yet, you know, it outperforms it on yes. every single level. So, I mean, you know, my, my goal is to kind of bring that sort of simplicity and, and economy to architecture to really refine and figure out ways that architecture can outperform the past but do it with much less material and effort mm -hmm. and and you know so those are the things that a lot of clients just don't you know that's not their interest they just think about what they know so it's important for me when when i work with someone that it's an exploration that we share rather than 
them already knowing the answer. Like, I want this. Well, if you want that, then just do it. Because I don't work like that. Like, I work with problems and figuring out how to optimize them. Process is going to be an exploration that we can both feed into and share and invent things through. Yeah. I feel that's a that's useful way to fun, work. Uh, but if it's <laughs> going to be that you know somebody comes and they already know what they want, then I don't have a role, really. I don't see what I can do. I, I don't start finished, you know. So if they already finished, then because uh, I I actually like the unknown sort of like work towards some answer, mm-hmm. and and if they start with knowing exactly what it is, I don't I, I, I don't I don't see much value for me in that process. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think you're doing my buddies son's school it's a waldorf school yeah is that kicked off yet i mean construction no no it's approved but we haven't started the construction how long is a project like that is it a whole city block is it no it's not it's it's actually a very interesting site because it's it's a piece of leftover land that was actually um at some point a creek but then it got filled in but it was glen park or something yeah yeah but it's abutted by the rear yards of a whole lot of single-family yeah, yeah, houses. Yeah. So, so um, will will there be a garden on that site that bleeds up to the building? So their yeah, kind the, of gardens extend, or does it? Yeah, the building's pretty much part of the landscape. In the middle of the lot, or yeah, it's in the yeah. middle. It's got exposure on one street, mm-hmm. but then it's entirely surrounded by. Um, by private houses. And how long does a project like that take to build, typically? A year and a half? I mean, the actual construction is the easiest part. Right. But getting it entitled can take quite a lot longer. Like, to build, I would say, you know, like, 14 months is probably the actual, like, mm-hmm. work on the site. Well, he was, I know he was really impressed that your firm was able to entitle that. Yeah, I mean, we, on, on a, we went to, you know, we had a lot of neighborhood opposition. Mm-hmm. And I mean, like, a lot of times when you get that sort of opposition, it's just like, it's not like a negotiation with the neighbors. It's just they don't want anything. Mm-hmm. They just didn't want a building. They mm-hmm. didn't want, they didn't care if it was a school and it was to educate children. And they just didn't want anything to happen. So... You know, that makes for a difficult negotiation when somebody's already... A zero. Yeah. So, but <laughs> we actually did get it approved. And it's, it's basically now, um, you know, it's a matter of them um, finalizing their funding, which mm-hmm. they're working on, to actually move the project forward. Thanks for reminding me about it, because sometimes I forget, because... It's been sort of in, on a slow burn for quite a few months. Yeah. No, I'm excited to see it. Is it on your site? Is there any renderings of yeah, it? Yeah, it's on our website. Cool. I'll check it out. Um, your website's awesome. It's thorough. Not thorough. It just like shows so many different types of projects. The Oz I looked at. I forget the one in South Africa. That's The Transvaal. Right. Yeah. Um, of course, the two, a couple of LA high-rises that I saw. 
Um, okay, last question for you, because time flies by when you know, you're rocking and talking about design. But um, the last question I have for you is, what's your favorite room in your house and why? Okay, it's a very easy question because my favorite room in my house is not a room. It's actually the outside. Uh-huh. And my house is um, in a building that I designed on Howard Street, 1234 Howard. And mm. it's basically, um, there's a, the rear yard runs right through the block. And I have two wings in my house. The ones, the living areas and they're all black. And then the other is the sleeping areas, they're all white. Mm-hmm. And they joined by a glass um, bridge, which is actually the entry. But before you get into that entry, there's a courtyard, which is glass on four sides and has sliding doors. And that's my favorite spot. It's sort of this um, like courtyard up in the sky, in the middle of South of Market, um, surrounded by glass, where I can see my whole house from the courtyard, and where I can open up um, a bedroom and um, my my um, library and work area. And so, you know, I just love to sit there. Sometimes I sleep there as well. Like last night, I fell asleep there, but then it got so cold that I had to go inside. But it's a that's my favorite spot. So it's, it's actually like, uh, it's the residue of the house itself. It's what, the house is what surrounds it, but it's not the house. Mm. I have a, a lot of other questions. Uh, I'm going to ask you one more, because uh, I can. Um, I think it was about like, for, for, you know, early career architects, what advice might you give them to do and what not to do? Um, I mean, I think, you know, you have to absorb everything that's happened. So you have to travel, you have to really educate yourself. Um, And, you know, I think you have to build up your reservoir of of what, has been done and what's possible to do and work out of that. I mean, we live, you know, at the apex of like such unbelievable human effort in making things, you know, um, that, that, you know, I, I just think that that in itself is such a force to motivate, like what people have done in the past. And um, I mean, not in the way that you replicate, but just in the way that, you know, they took opportunity and transformed it. And so I think you you really need to be steeped in all of that. And, you know, I think going to school is only a part of getting educated. You really have to teach yourself. I mean, I was lucky because I went to a school which had an intense kind of set of standards, but not very good teachers. So the students actually, we learned how to teach ourselves. I mean, that was from the very beginning, uh, how we educated ourselves. You know, we reached out to 
American. I mean, we were in this remote place. So, you know, I think learning how to learn is really critical and keeping that alive. So mm, that's, alive, that's yeah. the main thing. You know, and otherwise I think you need luck and, you know, that's about it. It's very hard though. It's a, it's a difficult kind of um, field to operate in, you know, because it's got huge responsibility, involves vast amounts of money, none of which um, pass into your wallet, but you still <laughs> manage these big kind of chunks of resource, you know, so it's, it's really a hard job, but it's the value and the pleasure of doing it is so rewarding. I mean, it's, it's you know, so people who get the, you know, who get the bug, they, they will be stuck with it, you know, regardless of how hard it is. Yeah. Well, I'm sure that uh, all the listeners that will enjoy sitting down with you as I have, although they won't be sitting down with you. So thanks, buddy. Okay. I appreciate you.